HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. HRN has a brand new look, but we're sharing the same delicious stories. Invest in the future of food radio by becoming a monthly sustaining member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. there. This is Lisa Held, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Cover crops are what you might call the darling of agricultural climate solutions. They have the potential to boost carbon sequestration, but also can hold soil in place to prevent water pollution and add nutrients to soil for fertility, potentially reducing fertilizer use and boosting crop yields. And compared to other fixes that make farming more environmentally friendly, but can require entire shifts in systems, they should theoretically be one of the easiest practices for more farmers to adopt. There is some movement. According to the latest USDA agricultural census, The percent of U.S. cropland planted with cover crops increased by 50% between 2012 and 2017, from just over 10 million acres to more than 15 million. That sounds like a lot, but those acres still only account for about 4% of the nation's total cropland. Now, a new analysis from the Environmental Working Group, or EWG, found that in crucial Midwest states, farmers planted cover crops on only one of every 20 acres of corn and soy fields in 2019. Soren Rehnquist is the Director of Spatial Analysis at EWG, and he's here today to talk about that report and its significance. Soren, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lisa. So first of all, you specialize in GIS, Geographic Information System Mapping. Um, Can you explain what that is and how it applies to studying agriculture? Of course. So uh, GIS, uh, Geographic Information Systems, is essentially um, taking data points and applying a geography to those data points uh, in the efforts of understanding various phenomena. and this report in, in, in particular is using a, a subset of GIS known as remote sensing, uh, in which we use satellite imagery 
uh, to kind of observe the earth and, and what's happening real time, more or less, uh, on the landscape. So you're actually looking on satellite images for evidence of cover crops? Exactly. Yeah. So the, using satellite data, there's a variety of spectral bands in which you can manipulate to uh, track the vigor of anything that's photosynthesizing. So trees, crops, grass, plants, etc. Uh, and, and the beauty of this analysis is in the upper Midwest, um, uh, the landscape is very homogenous. And uh, in the spring and the fall, uh, when the cash crop is absent from the landscape, it's 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 fairly easy to detect something that's greening in a in a landscape of of uh, harvested crop cover, harvested cash crops. Huh, that's really fascinating. Um, I didn't realize how much satellite data was used for <laughs> this kind of analysis. Yeah, yeah, and and one of the beauties of um, Earth observation uh, recently is there's there's more and more. Uh, higher resolution and higher frequent revisit of satellite data that's more accessible to the general public through the United States government as well as the European countries. Mm. And, and we specifically for this analysis, we leveraged both uh, the Sentinel-2 satellite, uh, a European satellite, and the uh, United States' Landsat-8 satellite. Wow. Okay. So I want to get more into the exact analysis that you did here in this report. But before we do that, um, I hinted kind of at what cover crops are in the beginning, but but didn't really explain at a more basic level. For, for people who are not farmers who might be listening, can you just explain what are cover crops and why are they important? Sure. Yeah. So cover crops are... Um, typically cold season grasses or legumes uh, planted on directly on cash crops after the cash crop has been harvested. Uh, in the states we looked at, Illinois, Iowa, Indiana, and Minnesota, you, you know, typically in the fall, the, the cash crop is harvested. And then typically in the fall, an actual cover crop is planted. Uh, and when the cover crop is planted, uh, it it emerges, and that, that emerging uh, vegetative cover will uh, absorb any excess nutrients. It will keep that, you know, that healthy soil and all that, that sediment on the field and protect it against um, you know, massive snow melt, uh, extreme rain, uh, extreme drought, windy conditions. Uh, and ultimately, you know, we think it's, you know, it's number one selling point as it's protecting water resources in and around these landscapes. So keeping that nutrient in the field, keeping that soil in the field and out of water resources is, is very important uh, for healthy aquatic ecosystems as well as you know, serving healthy drinking water to millions of people reliant on that in these region. Right. So cover crops are important to EWG's work for that reason, you know, for water quality and, and um, safe drinking water and, and all of those other things you mentioned. Um, why did you decide to look at this particular question of how much cropland in this specific area is being planted with co cover crops? What prompted this analysis? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so these four states in which we looked at are, are you know, a, a lion's share of the, the corn and bean universe in this uh, this region known as the Corn Belt. I can't 
it's, you know, these four states account for around 68 million acres of corn and soybeans. So they're a substantial um, loading source for water resources uh, within the Mississippi River Basin watershed. Uh, and and these, all, these states are also kind of top priorities for the USDA in terms of uh, spending taxpayer dollars in the form of conservation dollars to, mm. you know, grease the wheels to get farmers and producers to, to adopt this voluntary practice on the landscape. Um, in doing so, you know, we, we don't really have a good, um, I guess, monitoring system in place outside of, you know, a, a total acreage or a total dollars spent at crude geographies like county or state to, to really kind of uh, track how uh, prevalent this voluntary practice is on the landscape. And it being voluntary, voluntary, we'd like to see, you know, that, you know, if a farmer is being paid to put on upon, put that cover crop on his or her landscape there, or their fields, they're going to be, you know, maintaining that practice as time goes on. So, so in, ultimately, we're, we're looking to track that persistence of adoption. You know, how many farmers are, are maintaining this behavior within, you know, a matter of five, six years. Right. And does the, the satellite imagery that you're looking at, does it allow you to look at specific moments in time so you can actually see, like, when, look at a field, at, you know, during these months of this year and then look at it again at, a, at another point? Exactly. Yeah. Wow. So, so the satellite will allow us to, uh, you know, a lot of these states are kind of in the upper Midwest and are often covered with snow once you right. get past December. Uh, but, but look, we, you know, to, for this analysis specifically, we looked in November and December um, when the the cover crop would have been planted, and in some cases, you know, that you know it'll kind of germinate over the winter and it doesn't necessarily emerge. So we'll go back and look the subsequent year, uh, the following. Uh, April or March and April to see, you know, once the snow has melted, are we seeing kind of this green up again or persistence of green through both timestamps? But, but yeah, so so that that's a it's a culmination of looking at months and months of satellite data within those windows. Sounds like it's probably some tedious work. <laughs> <laughs> it, in the past, it has been, but uh, again, technologies like uh, Google Earth Engine, a platform which kind of allows you to do cloud computing on an entire catalog of satellite imagery is making this this process more uh, accessible, you know, mm. easier to run and uh, more digestible for more novice users. Got it. So you looked at cover crop plantings in these four states. What were the main findings? Well, the, the main finding we found was... Uh, that, you know, across the 68 million acres in the four states of 68 million acres of corn and soybeans in the four states, we detected around 3.2 million acres of cover crop. Um, and, and we've we've done this this survey uh, in 2015 and 2017. And, and what we found uh, was while we have still, you know, maintained some growth in these cover crops, uh, the growth is starting to plateau. We haven't, it's, it's not very substantial. Uh, you know, that those 3.2 million acres equate to about 4.8% of the total landscape being protected with cover crops. Um, and that's, that's somewhat alarming to us because, you know, with, uh, you know, nearly 70, $77 million we've spent already in these four states to 
you know, kind of grease the wheels for farmers to adopt this practice. You know, we were hoping we'd see, you know, some stronger growth, you know, in these increments in which we looked. Um, it, it, it is important to note that we're not losing cover crop acres. We're kind of, while the growth is slow, we're, we've somewhat plateaued, but we're still growing slightly. Uh, but in the larger scale of, you know, substantially reducing nutrient loads, we're, we're not, you know, anywhere close to meeting goals set by individual states on reducing nutrient loading to their surrounding surface waters. Right. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. HRN is excited to unveil the new look of food radio. We have a new brand identity and a new website. Our site makes it easier than ever to discover new podcasts and to dig through our archive of over 15,000 episodes. It's been 11 years since HRN started broadcasting food radio, and we've made it this far thanks to the support of our global listening community. It's because of member donations that this show is on the air, along with 40 other weekly shows. Your contributions gave HRN the security we needed to stay on the airwaves during the pandemic and are allowing us to reopen our studio in Roberta's. Becoming a monthly sustaining member of HRN shows us how much food radio means to you. Become a monthly sustaining member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I'm talking to Soren Rehnquist from EWG about his analysis of cover crop plantings in the Midwest. So right before the break, you mentioned this number, $77 million in federal funding. So that is a number that represents the amount of taxpayer money between 2015 and 2019 that has gone to planting cover crops through federal programs like EQIP and CSP, right, in these states. Um, and, you know, I just was thinking about this, and that's a lot of money, obviously, <laughs> Um but there's also state programs that pay for cover crops. There are um, nonprofits like, for instance, Practical Farmers of Iowa, I know, has some partnerships where they're working with big corporations that pay additional incentives to plant cover crops. So that number is actually likely very underestimated in terms of how much money is going into right um, getting farmers to plant these um, these cover crops. And... I want to talk to you about, you know, so all this money's going in. There are these tiny increases in acreage that are happening. Um, why is it not growing faster from your perspective? Like, is is this just not working? Is like the, this idea of paying farmers to plant them not a good idea? Or is the investment too small? And do we need to put more money in? Like, can the data tell us anything about about that question? Yeah, great question, <laughs> and I'll do my a best. Long question, to, sorry. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'll I'll do my best to kind of uh, wade through the nuance of all things, you know, being a farmer and what's informing those decisions. Um, sure. You're you're right. O outside of federal subsidies to you know 
help get cover crops on the landscape. So there are a lot of you know larger corporations and nonprofits that are also trying to kind of grease the wheels to to plant more cover crops on you know in these states specifically. Um, we have seen in in the previous two years a decline in USDA investment. So that that could be kind of you know while it's not the only uh, funding source in town, it you know that decline could be related to kind of seeing fewer acres on the landscape. But but there's you know there's a little more nuance into um, these landscapes in terms of adoption based on you know weather could be a primary driver you know if it's uh an earlier winter than expected you know once you harvest your your cash crop and there's already snow on the ground you know planting cover crops in you know some of those northern states might be an issue um other things uh like land ownership um in areas where we saw kind of uh, these gains and losses flickering when we when we compare with other time steps of when we've run this analysis, we see kind of regions that are known for for having high rental rates uh, losing more cover crops. So you know I'm I'm hypothesizing that that could be tied to you know if if you're you're paying top dollar for some land you're renting you know you're you're you you need a return on that investment. So you know taking the time to you know, get in a conservation program and stuff like that might not be your number one priority if you if you need to, you know, take care of the cash crop itself to stay in out of the red. Um, but but yeah, you know, and, and I think um, you know, there's opportunities to uh, you know add some strings to these dollars. You know, things some states are adopting kind of. Uh, more premium subsidy support for things like uh, crop insurance, if a producer can show that they're, you know, actively planting and maintaining cover crops on the landscape. So, I think th- these 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 smaller groups that are embedded in some of these states that are um, kind of at the forefront of cover crop adoption, they're they're actively kind of doing these more or less case studies to see which. Which type of relationship with funding works the best for maintaining this practice on the landscape? Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's a complicated question, and I don't think I've answered it as thoroughly as you'd like. But no, I, 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 I <laughs> I'm very good at asking complicated questions. I don't really have answers. It's sort of my specialty. Um, but and I mean, I think one point you made is really interesting that I wouldn't have thought of, which is this idea of land ownership and. Um, the relationship between ownership and investment in, in in things that will improve that land and conservation, right? Because if if the land is not yours and you're not going to benefit from if you're building healthy soil, but then you're gonna you know you don't even know if you're going to be on that land. Um, that's a very different situation than if you're say building the fertility of a farm that you plan on you know, living off of for mm-hmm. over the long term. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there's been a lot of reporting recently about the increasing numbers of, um, you know, a- absentee uh, land ownership. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. Right. And so, I mean, that that's, I don't think we have, you know, like enough information yet if, if that's a number one cause of this or what, but it's an interesting question. I think that, um, yeah, that yeah. you raise. Yeah. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you is you mentioned earlier um, about the long-term nature of, of planting, like how, in terms of the environmental benefits and, and the, 
the um, benefits for, for water systems. How important is it that these cover crops are planted year after year? Like, are, are there... Are we even getting any benefits if a farmer gets some some money one year and is able to plant a cover crop, but then has two years where, you know, they skip it because they, it wasn't a good year? Or like you said, the weather doesn't um, cooperate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. It's it's it compounds. You know, the 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 more persistent it maintains on the landscape in terms of reducing nutrients and protecting soil resources and and building that soil health. I think you need a you know, an active rotation of, of cash crop to cover crop to really start to, to see those yield benefits and, and et cetera. But yeah, yeah. I think if, if it's just going to be on the year or, you know, on the landscape for one year and, and then disappear the next for a couple, then back on, you're really losing kind of that bang for your buck, buck in terms of, you know, investment to keep that surround, those surrounding water resources clean. Um, right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ideally, you know, in in a voluntary landscape, we'd love to see this be, you know, the number one practice on, you know, all these four states and, and the surrounding states, you know, wherever you're growing cash crops near water resources, um, you know, that that would be really cool if we could get there. And at this sure. rate, I think we need to reexamine kind of these mechanisms for, you know, funding and and. You know, and look for opportunities to reform or to add more carrots to, you know, staying in this practice longer. Sure. Do you plan on repeating this analysis at any point um, or is this more of a one time uh, report? Yeah. Yeah. We, we'd love to. We, we've done it three times every other year. So 2015, 2017 and 2019. So uh, I, I think, it, you know, internally we've had this conversation that since uh, you know, we're, we're seeing this moment in technology when we can access these data more readily and can, you know, run algorithms on these data more readily. Uh, yeah, we, we'd like to get uh, more frequent, you know, maybe annually or, you know, every other or every other month or something kind of tracking this persistence. And so, yes, the technology is there and we would love to to keep this going and and grow the geography to include more states. Right. Yeah. It would be interesting to look at other states. And also with all of the movement right now in um, the federal government related to um, climate action and conservation, there are a lot of conversations happening about scaling these programs up that fund cover crops. So it would be interesting if something like that happens and there's suddenly a lot more money and then you're able to look at the before and the after. Maybe that could tell us some more about the the real impacts of these programs, right? Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, so one last thing I want to ask you is um, we've been talking about this report that you just released, but um, the technology you use, GIS, is really interesting. And I'm wondering if there are other uses or other analyses that you're thinking about um for the future or that you think it could be used for to help us better understand and implement um agricultural climate solutions like any any other ways that feel exciting to you oh definitely and i i could bore you for hours and hours on the <laughs> on the cool data sets that are becoming more readily available that will allow us to kind of examine this landscape more in in a higher resolution um 
So things like uh, looking at, uh, you know, county level rental rates and the, you know, those acreages associated with rental rates and kind of looking at, you know, is this behavior, you know, indicative of a situation that a farmer finds themselves in or, or weather data incorporating, you know, uh, rainfall, snowfall, uh, temperature data, growing degree days. Is this, you know, behavior of planting cover crops, you know, less persistent in areas that are, you know, more volatile in terms of climate, you know, mm. and which we're starting to see more and more in the upper Midwest, kind of these extreme events happening more frequently um, at times when the, where you're not really used to them. And so they're, they're greatly impacting the landscape and the, the behavior of, of folks planting these landscapes. So, yeah, yeah, I think that, and I could go on and on. Those are just a few of, you know, some of the cool questions we can start to look into and, and try to correlate to see if there's any relationship between these, these contributing uh, factors. Great. Well, thank you so much, Soren. I look forward to, to future uh, analyses <laughs> and uh, thanks for coming on the show. Anytime, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. Until next time, this is Lisa Held. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.